Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being, and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the most effective and healthiest way for we humans to live. The most healthy way when we know one another by name or at least by face. We tend to be cooperative, collaborative people. We like to do things together. We like to create things together. We like to hang out together, whether it's a sewing circle or a polka circle, whether it's watching a football game or it's creating a rocket to go to the moon. We are collaborative animals. However, we must always remember that a very, very small percentage of us are extremely different. These people are predators who would dominate the rest of us. These are the people that when we came out of the caves had the biggest club and they used the power of the club to lead the little group around the caves. And as the cave groups got bigger and formed little villages and then little towns and little cities, these people very often continued to dominate until they dominated such large territories that they took the title of kings. And when they became kings, They had subjects, not citizens. A subject meant, at the king's whim, off came your head. Eventually, the kings made a deal with the church. They were hand in hand. And from that time on, kings ruled by something called divine right. And when they ruled by divine right, if you went against the king, you were going against the church, you were going against God. And very few people were willing to do that. We have examples of this kind of dictatorial, tyrannical behavior going back to the Egyptians. The pharaohs in less than 1% ruled 99% of the people. Jumping forward in history, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and changed the Roman Empire, which was an experiment in a republic. He changed it into an empire, and he was the dictator. Remember, the Greeks and the Romans did experiment with democracy and republic, but eventually it failed. Going forward in history, whether it's Genghis Khan, whether it's Napoleon Bonaparte, whether it's Hitler, Mussolini, Putin, or Trump, or Bolsonaro, these are people who would be dictators over us and have us once again be subjects 
rather than the citizens we became in our revolution. Remember, our revolution was the first time in almost 2,000 years where people overthrew the king, went against the church, and formed what we have now, a democracy, one person, one vote, and a republic, everyone equal before the law. But a republic and a democracy are not permanent. They are fragile institutions, and all of us must do everything we can to stay aware and to stay awake and do what we can to maintain our democracy and our republic. It will not continue by itself. It takes all of us collaborating to keep it and stop the dictators from taking over our country. In the words of my great hero, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Evan Solar. He's a licensed psychologist. He's the author of the famous MAPS Treatment Manual. MAPS, remember, is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science, which is leading the way in the world towards the federal uh, FDA, rather, being uh, recognizing MDMA, MDMA as a prescription drug. He's also a therapist working in MDMA clinical trials at the University of California, San Francisco, and doing other research. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Evan. Thanks for having me, Richard. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Evan, what's on your radar screen? What's capturing your attention these days? Well, I guess it's a lot of things, but with the psychedelic therapy world, um, been working with MAPS for about 12 years now, and I'm shifting in my role with them a little bit away from being the therapist. I'm sure I'll do that some more, and I do some of that in my private practice, but I'm shifting into a little bit more of a supervision, consultation, teaching, training sort of role. And so that's been interesting to see, you know, what's in store for us for the next couple of years. We have a lot of people that we want to teach and uh, hopefully have adopt this paradigm and change psychotherapy through it. And when you say a lot of people to teach, Evan, what, what are you teaching them? What is new about the training that wasn't there before? Um, well, I think with psychedelic-assisted therapy, you have an expansion on the usual, the way we typically think of therapy. And so the, the one thing that gets said often is that it's amplified terrain or nonspecific amplification of consciousness. And so that can be the full gamut of human experiencing. It can be wonder, ecstasy, bliss. It could also be some scary stuff. It can be terror. It can be some horrible aspects of human experience, kind of like what you were describing in your introduction, you know, the full round circle of what we do to each other as humans, I think can, can come up in a therapy session and to try to teach therapists to be ready to stay with that, to be with that and accept what's emerging can be actually a, a kind of a difficult feat. Evan, we've all heard a lot, or at least many of us have heard a lot, about the positive aspects of psychedelics, uh, including MDMA, although technically it's not a psychedelic. And we've heard about improvement in depression, We've heard about improvement in anxiety. We've heard about improvement in end of life transitioning quite a bit. Um, we've read about uh, 
the famous study that uh, that uh, Roland Griffiths and Catherine McLean did with depression at Johns Hopkins. But what we haven't heard about much are the words that you just use in describing uh, some of the experiences, and that is terror, frightening experiences. And I'd like you to talk about what you've encountered about w- with regard to terrifying, scary. Basically, what can you share with us and as much as you can possibly share with us about adverse effects. And the reason I want to do this is I think that the more we know about the negative, the po- effects, or what you, I'm not even sure there are negative, they're just adverse or unwanted complications. The more we know about them, the more we can prepare for them and be ready for them and deal with them. Yeah, I'm right there on the same page with you, Richard. I think it's a great question. And a really important inquiry to lean into right now, especially right now, as we're gearing up to uh, potentially a post-approval, FDA-approval world. Um, You know, first, I do want to say that I'm not speaking for MAPS or MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. So a lot of this would be, you could take it as my own anecdotal experience, some from the studies, but some from my practice. And also from my dissertation, where I looked at uh, a number of combat veterans and MDMA sessions and coded themes that were emergent for them in the MDMA sessions as they healed their trauma. And uh, so in the study, you know, we look at adverse events and we document them really rigorously. And that could be anything from if you have a headache, if you have a little bit of a cold in the weeks after the MDMA session. Uh, if your mood shifts, it could also be things positive that happen, you know, improvements in mood in other places. I don't have statistics for you about the study, but I'll, again, I'll speak from what I've seen as a, a patterns that emerge for people in psychedelic therapy session. And so I, I don't want to give the impression that suffering is always part of it because I don't think it is. And maybe not even for uh, half the people, maybe it's for less than half of the people, or maybe it's for less than half the process. But I think one of the concerns that I have right now is that with uh, the really positive publicity we're getting right now is great. The study results have looked really good, but we're not hearing enough stories about how people got to that positive result. Um, and, And especially stories where people are having a really hard time. So I've just come to be really interested in, say, the 30% or 40% of people who aren't necessarily recovering. And also the, the ones who no longer have, say, PTSD, who um, have a really great story to share, but often the most difficult aspects of it aren't shared. And so um, what I've come to notice is that it's quite often the case that people... Uh, experience things that are intolerable or uh, you mentioned, or I named horror, that kind of thing, really big anxiety, um, being convinced one is going to die or convinced one is having a heart attack, that sort of thing. Scary stuff like that, I think is not, it's not uh, uncommon in psychedelic therapy sessions. And so it's hard to prepare someone for that. We do a lot of good work in the preparation session. But I don't know if we can fully prepare someone for what, what to expect. Now, when you talk about uh, horror or feeling like uh, they might die, 
is have you had that experience? And I understand, by the way, I'm going to take a sidebar. I understand and appreciate you're speaking from your own anecdotal uh, experience only. You're not representing any organizations. I appreciate you saying that. And really what I want is your uh, anecdotal uh, information and experience as a, as a clinician and as a scientist. So that works. That's really great. Now, have you experienced people thinking they're going to die under the influence of MDMA, or are you referring to other psychedelics? I, I think I could speak for probably just about any psychedelic, but the only ones that I've worked with directly are MDMA and ketamine. Okay. Just to be clear. Yeah. And then I work with people in integration sessions who maybe have done psilocybin elsewhere, and then they come to me to do integration work. So I could sort of speak to that a little more indirectly. But, but yeah, that, that with MDMA as well. Okay. And when people have had these dramatic emotional upheavals, scared, horrified, thinking they're going to die, have the uh, psychotherapeutic uh, techniques that you and your colleagues have used uh, worked on them so that by the end of the session, uh, they were calm and they felt like they had a positive experience? Or some of them maintain the adverse effect throughout the entire experience and it continues post-experience? I would say for the most part, I haven't really seen someone suffering the entire time, start to finish, and then they leave still in that place. Usually there is a kind of arc that you experience where uh, when the medicine is coming on um, or sometimes midway through the day where, you know, and it can often come after someone really relaxes and feels a deep sense of safety and peace. The way I think of it is that it kind of invites deeper work to come up. And so usually it comes in waves and uh, kind of goes back and forth. One participant who was a veteran, I can remember, he was saying it like uh, about Every 20 minutes, he would flip and he would say, uh, I'm feeling so peaceful. I haven't felt this peaceful since before I went to Iraq, you know, before he did a tour of uh, combat. And uh, I can't believe how peaceful I feel on my body right now. And then about 20 minutes later, he would say, oh, my goodness, I can't, I can't feel this anymore. I can't tolerate this. I want this to stop. How do I get this to stop? And then throughout the day, I think it's an interesting example because throughout the day, he went from experiencing that from about 30 minutes apart to 15 minutes apart to five minutes apart. Eventually, he was able to say it almost like in the same thought that he was feeling both at the same time. He was feeling the dread and a real agony, uh, whatever it was that he it was kind of like an out of control feeling. He didn't feel it in control of his mind or his body and the feelings that kept coming up. And so he was eventually able to uh, feel that at the same time. I don't know if that was through therapist technique or the technique is more like in the negative. It's more like the approach or the space that gets held. You know, I think a lot of times when the, the therapist can hold a sense of relativity within themselves, such as, uh, yeah, I see we're going through hell, and not, not in a way where you'd say, oh, but look, isn't there something uh, shiny here? But isn't this fun? Not that kind of relativity. No. More, <laughs> that, that doesn't often go well. No, if you try to If you try to steer them right out of it, probably it would backfire. But more so the therapist understanding that if we're in a really deep kind of place like that, 
then probably something else might be emerging too. Or the way I think of it with veterans, often if there's moral injury and we see a part of them that comes out that feels kind of monster-like or a scary part of themselves, we know something tender is nearby. And so often the boy hides out close to the monster or the beast. And so that kind of remembering that kind of relativity can keep you balanced as a therapist so that your own sense of overwhelm doesn't hit the roof. Yeah. When I was referring to a technique, I was thinking of breathing exercises that I've used successfully with people suffering from anxiety and uh, with remarkable success, really. I don't know if I've ever seen a situation where a person with anxiety couldn't be calmed down if they're willing to stay with the breathing long enough to to calm themselves down from it. I would say the breathing, it's a go-to. It's built into the, the MAPS treatment manual. I certainly use it in my practice. (laughs) Um, and I'll almost always go to it first. In fact, in preparation sessions and at the beginning of the psychedelic session, I'll, we'll practice or I'll remind clients about it. In the moment though, I find that it's hit or miss. Often it will work. If, like you said, if they engage, it's true. It tends, it tends to be helpful. If they engage. That's right. That's right. But, but. I think that's not always possible. In other words, if a panic is emerging faster than they can like tend to their breath um, and the breath might remain shallow, then um, folks can get really locked into certain states for a little while. And then that can sometimes lead to the, the therapist panicking a little bit. It can be hard to, to watch someone um, in a great deal of suffering when you're supposed to be caring for them. Yes. Now, a lot of the research has focused on people suffering from various forms of depression, ranging from moderate depression to quite severe clinical depression. What about people with high anxiety? Are people with high anxiety good candidates for one MDMA and two ketamine? I think so. I mean, for one, ketamine, another thing that it can be used off-label to treat as PTSD. I'm sure you know that. And that is an anxiety disorder. And I think it can be a more compassionate way to think about most other anxiety disorders. It's not that you would be guaranteed not to have a, an experience of anxiety or panic in the session, but those that uh, cluster of anxiety disorders are some of the most treatable uh, mental health disorders. And I think that's all also the case with psychedelic therapy. But there is that piece about how do you educate or how do you prepare someone to go into an experience that might be the the exact thing that they're really wishing to stay away from. It's kind of paradoxical in in that way and not always easy to understand. That's really the meat and potatoes of the work though, isn't it? That we go into the very things that are scaring us the most and that are sitting in little cubby holes in our consciousness that we've sealed off and we're afraid to look at. And the psychedelics open up those boxes and allow us to take a look. I, mean, I think that's so true. I think that's true. That, that, yeah. And so in the preparation, if we know that we're, we're ready to open up boxes, but what you and I are talking about perhaps are the times when boxes get opened up that the people weren't ready for. Like a situation I know of where 
a person opened up a box and they saw, I mean, they didn't open it. It opened by itself as a result of the psychedelic medicine. And they got to see a childhood trauma that had been sealed off for 60 years or more. Goodness. And it was it was very frightening. And it took a long time to recover from that. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that sort of narrative that sometimes folks and I think consent is interesting here too, because folks might consent to do this therapy having one thing in mind, and then when they get deep into the territory, some other things can unfold, other boxes can open up, and they might say, Wait a minute. Am I really up for this? So I think you're always reassessing. I mean, mid-session isn't a good time to reassess, but um, I think folks are often reassessing in an integration session, you know, how much, how, how much further they want to take the work or how deep they want to go. And I think you don't have to do all of it at once. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not gonna work for everybody to dig that stuff out. And it, it does take a certain pacing and time I think we like to say that this therapy works fast or some, what, what have some people said, 15 years of therapy in, in a day. I think there's struggles with that too. I think there's risks that are involved with that if you open up too much too fast and certainly seen a number of people to, you know, do that sort of thing in therapy. And uh, sometimes the therapy hasn't ended so well because of that. Give me an example of therapy not ending well from your experience or stories you've heard. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I worked with someone who was um, later in their life and they were uncovering things that they sort of felt they knew about, um, but didn't know the full detail about. And when we got into it with ketamine therapy, um, they experienced what I might call, uh, you know, I don't know what to call it, Richard, but I consider myself a little bit of a Jungian. I'm not an analyst, but I, you know, tra- I did my pre-doc at the Jung Institute and so got some really good training from Jungian analysts for about two years there. And they use this word like d- demonic, the demonic territory of the psyche. So I might think of it as a demonic possession. I don't know if you've ever heard of this sort of thing happening before, but it, it can happen in therapy. I don't know that I've ever seen it happen in a therapy session without psychedelics. Um, but I have seen it a number of times in, in therapy sessions with psychedelic. And I think the way this person became um, outrageous or um, in this animal-like or demonic-like take, often they wouldn't remember any of it. It would be kind of like a blackout experience. And I'd rehash it to them. And ultimately, I think it was really hard to bear, really hard to be with some of this old kind of nasty traumatic stuff and it i think it made them feel like there was way too much like a mountain to climb and they weren't up for it um and we couldn't exactly turn it off i don't mean that they were in that state they often i mean they would always come out of that state pretty quickly even within the session they would kind of cycle through it for maybe five or ten minutes and like i had said before they they um we all we also would almost always encounter the precious thing, the I might call it the diamond in the rough or the baby in the bathwater. So though that beast sort of came out, we then we got to hold the baby, so to speak. And so it was a really beautiful thing. And and from a, again a Jungian perspective, I think we'd say like an archetypal 
protector self-care system was at play there where that beast like whether that's a self-state or however you want to think of that was fiercely absolutely fiercely protecting that precious aspect of the psyche that we'd get to hold in so i thought it was really good work i think we were um nonetheless in the middle of it when the pain of it felt like it was too much and the therapy was ended by this client very abruptly. So that was painful. When, when you meet with veterans who have PTSD, you go in with the assumption that they have witnessed traumatic or experienced traumatic events. And the, and the combat veteran is, of course, aware whether they remember the event or not. They are aware of the fact that they've either seen or felt or experienced something horrific. When, when you and I as practitioners meet with somebody who comes in and as they're filling out their forms to be vetted for candidacy for these experiences, they are aware of the fact that they were abused as children or that they've had trauma as children. They know going into the psychedelic experience that they're liable to relive those experiences or get views of them, you know, right in their face. But what comes to mind as we're having this conversation, Evan, is what about all the people who have traumas so sealed off that they are not walking around aware of them whatsoever? And so when they get opened up, it's for the first time, maybe in decades or maybe for the first time since the event happened. If a woman was raped, for example, at age five and completely repressed it, and now she's 47 and takes a psychedelic and all of a sudden relives or sees that experience happening, it's going to be very shocking. And we need to be prepared for that kind of shock, don't we? Yeah, I think so. I think really what there's so much in what, what you're saying um, that people, in a way, they've already experienced this, the, the trauma, the traumatic event in one way. You could say this is like a little bit of Winnicott here, but in one way, they all—it already happened, and that's the good news. It's not happening again. It already happened. Right now, you're safe. But in this other very real way, it—it it hasn't ever happened in a way where they were not uh, fragmented, dissociated, and so to integrate it can can sometimes mean re-experiencing in a way that they never could tolerate, and so that intolerable quality is the first thing to get, I think, projected into the therapist. And so that's when it gets hard, not just to fully have a participant or client consent, but to try to teach uh, up and coming therapists that actually they're going to end up taking on or feeling, not in, a, in an absolute or magical way per se, but in the sense of projective identification, the parts of the other are going to be lodged in them, the therapist, and how to work with that without just firing it right back, without shutting it down, can be really tricky. And um, and I really want to make it my goal to focus on that, the complexity of that specific to the psychedelic therapy environment. Yes. Yeah, really what you're underlining for us, Evan, is that when a therapist brings a psychedelic into play, they're really upping the ante with regard to the professional responsibility that they're taking on, and they're upping it considerably. I think so. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and I think the first take, and, and it's true what I'm going to say, it's like, in some ways, psychedelic therapy is easier. You know, if you have a, you have a day-long session, it's forgiving in that way. Anything you miss or didn't get to say, you'll have six more hours to say it. <laughs> or if someone gets away from something, you get to circle back eventually. Um, and you, you have a co-therapist. You can release your, you know, you can go to the bathroom. You can, uh, you need to go take lunch at, at some point. So in some sense, it's easier and it has the facilitation of the psychedelic, which often with MDMA and, and ketamine, it, there can be a gentle side of it that feels easeful, feels loving. But I think there's this kind of underbelly too, a little bit that gets passed over because of the positive results um, about just what we're talking about, that actually it ups the ante and ups the responsibility and that we need more time to process some of this stuff that we end up holding um, and to be able to think about things that get enacted in the therapy session. Because I think enactment is inevitable in long-term therapy where you're doing really good work with clients. And therefore, I think enactment is something that gets amplified as well. And we need to actually embrace that and not just think that's a, a, a terrible thing to have happen. I, wa I want to um, underline for our listeners that what we're talking about is what is often referred to as psycholytic therapy as differentiated from psychedelic therapy. And I'll define that. Uh, psycholytic therapy is what's referred to as the use of psychedelic medicine at a dose that allows for a conversation to happen between the patient and the therapist. Whereas psychedelic therapy, in this definitional system at least, is, is what is described as high dose where the person, the, the patient uh, or client is uh, blindfolded for the most part and spends most of the entire session doing inner introspective work and very little conversational. So, so the relationship between staying in and quiet uh, and talking is such that it's mostly staying in and quiet, maybe with some talking, whereas the kind of therapy that uh, Evan and I are talking about is where there's an ongoing, pretty much of an ongoing conversation, not to say that the patient and subject doesn't go inside for times for periods of time and then come out again. Uh, do you agree with that, uh, uh, that we're talking about more conversational therapy, psychedelic assisted? Definitely conversational, um, but it's, a, it's kind of a mixed bag. I'd say it's right on the line because we, we say we're doing high dose, um, but, and then also in ketamine therapy, you know, it's just such a range with folks. And I think in the MAPS treatment manual, we say we try to balance inward and outward. We try to balance the talking and the going inward and the dose hits people differently. But, but roughly, yeah, that it's conversational. So it's, I'd say it's on the cusp. We've been talking mostly now about experiences that go on during the psychotherapeutic, psychedelic medicine-assisted sessions. Let's talk some about your experience post-session. What, kind of, what kind of adverse effects or unwanted complications have you witnessed or do you know about that occur post-MDMA first and then secondly, post-ketamine? Sure. And do you mean that for the 
client or for the therapist or? Well, well, that's a great question. (laughs) I love that question. So I was primarily asking about the uh, patient, but now that you've opened up that other door, I definitely want to hear about adverse effects on the therapist as well. And thank you for opening that door. Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll get to that at the end. But first off, I think that people you know, we're talking, we're keeping it in the adverse stuff, I think, is yes. how you pose the question. So correct. I, before I sound like the, the negative, the, the suffering guy, I just want to uh, bring some relativity to that and, and remind that, you know, most of the time people are going through these experiences, feeling like something's changed for the better, like joy and bliss are more accessible that they feel like they could sleep for the first time in 10 years. Sometimes I've heard people say so countless positive examples, but yeah, we're going to talk about the adverse stuff. And so I think for a lot of folks, even if there is a positive shift for them in their life, it still can kind of be like a, a paradigm shift in a way for them, or it can open them up to more possibility and when you have someone with treatment-resistant PTSD or maybe complex PTSD, one way I think about that, and that you could say 30 40%, maybe eventually it'd be 50% non-responders, is that the good, there's no place for the good. That's one way to think about it. Or the good stuff is um, confusing. I think of like disorganized attachment styles. It's not to be trusted. The good is some feeling something good would like hope would be the scariest thing possible. And so not that these folks can't keep working through and getting, you know, moving closer and closer towards what we'd consider more of a positive outcome. But for some period of time, I noticed they, they'll struggle with uh, needing to reject or squash the good. So it ends up being an old familiar kind of bad, their disappointment. Their disappointment becomes a central part of the process. And they might make it about the study. They might make it about the therapist. And I'll try to take that on as much as possible because sometimes I think if they don't know where, they don't know what's going to happen with the bad, how are they going to trust the good? This is like another Winnicott idea. He was working with a teenager and uh, realized that the teenager couldn't trust all his love and the good stuff he was offering until he could locate Winnicott's hate. He just knew that something terrible was going to come. There's going to be another shoe that's going to drop, that kind of mentality. And so I think you can't just rush someone into uh, uh, this overwhelmingly positive um, sense of life if they've never established that, and especially if you've never established any dirt between you. Because it's not, it's not, there's no earth there. It's not real enough. Sometimes I'm convinced there has to be some dirt that, that truly comes between you before you could actually put something good on top of that. So yeah, there's a, there can be a destabilizing period and a lot of disappointment is what I see most of. I don't know if I make a big distinction between MDMA and ketamine afterwards in terms of potential suffering. Um, I would say with MDMA, the the positive effects seem to last a little longer. With ketamine, it, it can be a little more fleeting. So it could be two days, three days, um, if someone's having a hard time. But in terms of the psychological process that, that people come in with that are having a hard time, I, I'd have to think 
further about a distinction between MDMA and ketamine. And I wonder if you have anything in mind there. Um, I, I want to share a case that I know about of a person who took MDMA and uh, afterwards felt that their anxiety had increased. There was, a, there was a very positive aspect of the session, extremely positive, uh, but there was also a sense that their anxiety had increased. So it was sort of like what you were just talking about, the good and the bad. And the good was remarkable, really remarkable, but the bad was anxiety and then some paranoia and some kind of dizzy, un, uh, unstable feeling that have gone on for quite a while. And you're shaking your head, yes, like you're, this sounds familiar to you. Tell me. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the, the case that I had shared a few minutes back. And she said that, you know, I said the diamond in the rough or the baby in the bathwater. We came to understand that after we held that baby, she saw an image, and this is a little bit crass, but she saw an image of feces, and it's almost like she wanted to put the baby back in. She said that she had been hiding in that fecal material. So I don't know, you could call that the bad, or you could call that the, the really intolerable stuff that you would find impossible to bring into relationship. Um, there was something about that image that really stuck with me. Um, that she said there was a diamond. The, 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 she had a vision of a diamond that represented her, maybe you could say, true self. And that's good to know that's there, but it's not safe to come out of that fecal material. It has to stay there to kind of safety that I don't think we'd agree that's a safe place to live. But somehow, um, you know, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that giving someone a good experience or, or even truly from within them having a sense of trust that isn't the same as them suddenly having that in their life or the community around them. And so sometimes the social support piece of this gets bypassed too, or the fact that that might take years to establish. Um, so I think she was having trouble reconciling all that hope she was experiencing um, with the fact that she didn't, she didn't know how that was actually going to happen in her life or her relationships, her children. In fact, she was, she was working on that and doing a good job, but she would, there was a way that it still was like a gravity pulling her back into what felt like a safer place to be. It was, it was quite raw to step outside of that uh, kind of darker territory. She did kind she, of envisioned herself as without skin, a skeleton without skin. Did, did she suffer from anxiety post- experience high anxiety oh gosh yes sometimes she'd be in a lot of bliss for days and so there's that but when she had a hard one she would be in anxiety for days and we would do extra sessions and mm -hmm. try to create support and sometimes the technique or the way i'd approach her could really shift that but i gotta say not always not always sometimes it was um it was almost like a process that had to play out for a couple days. And it brought the question of whether it was worth it for her. And I think it's a good, an appropriate question to hold. Have you run into other situations where post-psycholytic or psychedelic experience, people have experienced even higher anxiety for weeks or months? I can't say that I have. I'd seen someone recently who, just for the integration, who had done psilocybin underground. And 
I've heard of this kind of thing before and underground where they give really massive psilocybin doses. And I don't want to knock that or knock the underground. I don't know quite where that's coming from, but I know that they're coming from valid places, you know, with indigenous lineages that that's where this work started. So I really respect that. Um, But I think from her perspective, the client's perspective, she was in way over her head, was pretty psychedelically naive before she had the encounter. And um, when she had a hard time, she brought it to the therapist and the therapist had an attitude like, what do you want me to do about it? Um, You're just going to have to deal with this. Or when the client kept pressing, she had an attitude like, you know, deal with it yourself. You're just being dramatic. I think it was the message that she got. And whether she said those words or whether that was the client's perspective, I think, you know, I don't know all the facts, all the details, but I trust that there was a big miss there. And um, I think that put her in a place where she was at least a couple weeks out from the experience and still suffering on a daily basis about it. Um, Of course, some of the suffering aspects can last years or people could say a lifetime. But not in that way you're saying the acute, really uh, extreme sense of anxiety. I think I I usually don't hear about that. But I think if the container that holds you falls apart completely, you know, in your psychedelic experience or in your integration period, it can really set people spinning for a while. I think what was happening there was she was bringing the suffering to uh, directly to the therapist and the therapist took it personally or thought that she was being asked that, to make it go away. I don't think that would have been possible, but the therapist missed the opportunity to be with her somehow in it and kind of let herself touch it a little bit, be touched with some of that dirt. Of course, one thing that doesn't get talked about, and I guess I'm going to have to start, not have to, but I will start talking about on this program, is to what extent a therapist's fear of getting outed or sued uh, affects the treatment. Because, for example, in your case, you're working totally legally, but you're a scientist and everything you do is 100% legal. So you have that kind of foundation. But when you refer to underground, the underground people do not have any foundation. They're doing something illegal. And if it's a licensed person like yourself and myself that's doing something illegal, they also stand the risk of losing their license if they were to if they they were to get turned in. So that adds some some intricacies, doesn't it? it? That adds intricacies that are not really I've never heard anyone talking about this. In fact, until this moment, I haven't been talking about it. Yeah, I don't know if I've talked about this particular angle myself either, but it made me think of someone I heard recently where, you know, I don't know if this is part of the giving really high doses or not. But I've heard, uh, you know, kind of a theme of therapists being afraid not to give their clients a really positive experience. Like we've been talking about, if you don't have something really profound happen, then they're worried. Or if you have a suffering element of your experience, then you're worried you're going to get sued. And so that, um, in the case that I had heard about recently, led the person to giving a higher dose you know, make sure they get the bang for their buck, so to speak, or make sure they see God or whatever. Uh-huh. 
And then uh-huh. also I'm going to uh-huh. give you something before the session's over, like a benzo, um, so that we can, you know, make sure you don't have anything negative hanging over you. When, you know, I'm, I'm not saying people should be suffering or we're warning them to suffer, but sometimes when you interrupt the process, um, I think that can just create other problems or when you're catering to this almost defensive posture that you named, that's worrisome about what that'll. I think when a def- if, if a therapist takes a defensive posture, that is worrisome. And it, it certainly is. Yeah, very much so. The, the, um, uh, right. You mentioned earlier that uh, towards the end, and we're coming to the end, you would talk about uh, adverse effects on the therapist. We are now sort of circling around that topic. And do you have a story or two to add with regard to adverse effects on the therapist themselves? Yeah, I wish I didn't, Richard. <laughs> I, I, I know it's you. Thank you. <laughs> right. But of I course. do. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me that we had a, uh, MAPS had a trainer's retreat so that the educators and trainers can meet together and talk about our common experience. And one thing that you'll also see in, in uh, education events is we talk about self-care. We give examples of what we do to take care of ourselves. And that's an important conversation. But what I really wanted to do in that retreat I just named was uh, to go around and hear from people, especially our, our elders, and kind of hear fails. Like, well, I want to hear where the self-care failed because I think that's inevitable and um, we need to learn from each other and in these big mistakes. And I think some of the terrible stuff that's played out in the psychedelic therapy world over the last couple of years that we've seen in the press is probably just an amplified version, maybe, of something that we need more support around ourselves as therapists. Maybe we could prevent terrible things from truly being uh, acted out. So I'll give a, I'll give a self-care fail example for myself. And um, I was seeing someone in the study who um, we had a hard time having them go inward. And so they just had a lot to share. It was high dose, but they sometimes you don't even have to stay conversational. You just let them almost like verbally uh, vomit, so to speak. And uh, what medicine? MDMA. How high a dose? Uh, I think 125 and then two hours later, half that dose. Oh, okay. So I don't, con- I don't consider that a high dose, by the okay. way. To me, 125 is a standard dose and half of that for the booster is a standard booster. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That sounds about right to me. We, we, that's, that's been our standard dose. I think we did a dose response study where that was the high dose, but anyways, you have you have a take on that that sounds right to me too. Um, well, I'm just going back 30 years with Rick, you know, and 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 from the beginning, that's sort of the number that we've always, that we pretty much established. Though in recent years, Rick's told me that he's found uh, evidence that some people get as much out of 75 milligrams as as they do out of 125. Right, which is interesting, and I think that matches the intuition of both Ann Shulgin and Annie Midhoffer. I've heard yeah. that they thought that clinically yeah. and was I true think, and then I, it fared out in the dose response study. I, I think that's important too, in, in, in the sense that a lower dose is going to have less cardiovascular effects, which is the one worrisome concern with having the, uh, the last letter of MDMA being mm-hmm. uh, amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I'm segueing away from, uh, I think, my, my uh, shameful story, but so I'll, yeah. I'll get back to telling that. And so, so the long story short was that it was, a, it was a, a client that was very outward. So it was a lot to hold that, that they were coming forward with. And um, I noticed the next morning, you know, I got home and I, I, I kind of just collapsed. I couldn't, I just needed to sleep. I didn't go through my usual self-care routine. And um, I woke up the next day and had an appointment with a friend uh, just on Zoom and noticed I had to get off. And I just thought I had cog clock. I was convinced that I maybe I had COVID. And then I wasn't able to speak at all and had aphasia for about 20 hours, was speechless. And so my partner took me to the hospital and they were convinced that I had a stroke. And just long story short, you know, I did not have a stroke, but I ended up staying in the hospital for three days. And they eventually ruled the stroke out with an MRI and told me that I had an atypical migraine. And so I've developed migraines since that. And I don't wanna say there's a definite causal reaction you know, just because it was the day after the, that participant, but it was a really, it was a really stressful week. And, uh, another piece of that story that sealed it for me is that in the next integration session, this participant started to talk about childhood migraine, uh, all through their, uh, early lives that they experienced migraine. And I thought, okay, this, there's something here. And I wasn't, tuning into it. I'm being taught now about how to tune into this pressurized place that I sat in for a day. And maybe there's a way that I could uh, approach that differently going forward. So I think this is just one of many stories about how we come to hold the pain beyond whether we want to or not. I think we're kind of signing up for that and don't always know, but our, our bodies let us know eventually. That's a very dramatic story, Evan. And you're still suffering from the migraines to this day? I've never had a, a headache since, but I notice the, what are called the silent symptoms almost every day, where you start to notice an aura or a ringing or other things that tell you that if you keep up on this track, the, the headache is coming. And so it's a way for me to kind of regulate myself a little sooner, hopefully. So it's been about a year and I haven't had any headaches like that and I haven't lost my speech either. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. It must have been quite frightening, particularly. I mean, a stroke is frightening at any age, but to have it at your age must have been quite frightening unless you've had enough psychedelics to have dealt with death and had no fear whatsoever. That was probably some of the help. And I think I was a little bit in shock for those three days where that was the story maybe holding out for some other possibility. But uh, yeah, probably uh, uh, some experience with the death rebirth uh, spiral was no doubt helpful. I'll share a, an experience of my own then with you since you were courageous and shared that personal experience. In, in my early uh, years of exp self-experimentation with psychedelics, mostly LSD, I... I so successfully made peace with death as being part of life that I literally lost my fear of dying. And as a result of that, what I realized looking back is I put myself in very dangerous situations because that fear was not there. And I remember a dear friend saying to me, Miller, you don't have enough fear. 
Every time I ride, this is what a, a doctor friend, Robert Argan, said this to me. He said, every, every time I ride my motorcycle, I'm a little scared. And he said, you ride a motorcycle and you're fearless and it's very dangerous. And he was correct. And I ended up having a major motorcycle accident during which a Winnebago ran over me and crushed both my legs oh. and almost led to an amputation. And I've suffered pain from it for the last 30 years since that accident. And he and his warning was prescient because it was a lack of fear. And so in, in, in an odd way now, as I'm writing this book on adverse effects, I realized that that was an adverse effect, even though I thought it was, it's been so good for me to live a life without fear of dying, which I, I accept totally. On the other hand, there was an adverse effect that also affected me. It's almost like your story of the good and the bad. I really love that. And so, yes, and, and, and this came to me only recently that my lack of fear has led to me doing, and I look back on the other dangerous things that I did. And, and uh, you know, when I met my wife, she, she thought, not that I was crazy, but that she couldn't believe that at my age, I was, even after the accident, I was still motorcycling. And it was only because of her and the insight she gave me that I gave it up. And, and I pretty much, yeah, I gave up doing dangerous things. But the insight about the cause of doing these, somewhat of the cause, it couldn't be the only factor, came to me recently about the lack of fear. And fear is a protector. It isn't just a bad thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I came to view it as something to completely eliminate from my life. I thought, you know, freedom means walking around without any fear and not coming, not taking into account the positive part of fear, which is a warning signal. Hey, don't do that. <laughs> what a valuable story, Richard. I'm sorry to hear about the crash. And it, it sounded yeah, like, you know, maybe something shifted there for you. And um, it really does speak well to, I think, my point that we're not here to transcend the difficult feeling and that even though fear can shut us down i think we're looking for like whatever it means to have the right relationship to fear and that's not always easy to suss out and sometimes we boomerang way into the opposite and i really appreciate that you shared that with me i really appreciate that you shared the story about the your headaches and about these little halos that you still that you still see i'll be thinking about that a lot so we're going to take a short break now where I'm going to be talking to our listeners about the program. And while I'm doing that, I'd like you to be thinking about what else you might like to add to this interview after I come back and before we conclude. Okay. Thank you all for listening to this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics where, with our distinguished guest, Dr. Evan Sola. Please go to the website our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Check out the archives. We've got some of the most interesting people in the planet, or should I say on the planet? Well, they're both in the planet and on the planet as far as I'm concerned, because I don't think we live on the earth. I think we're part of the earth. But go to the website and check out the archives. They're open source, which means no charge to you. You can listen to them anytime you want. 
In addition, we broadcast at nine o'clock every Tuesday morning with a new broadcast and a new interview. So you can both listen to the new stuff and you can listen to the archives by going to the website. And if you go to the website and you push on something that says subscribe, it helps us in some way that's a mystery to me, but I'm asking that you do it. Also, check out my books, uh, Psychedelic Medicine, which is uh, a book of interviews with the, some of the greatest scientists in psychedelic science in the country, and the latest one, Psychedelic Wisdom, interviews with some prominent people who are outing themselves as tribal elders and sharing stories about decades of sub rosa psychedelic experimentation. Other books coming up, I'm doing one on end-of-life transitioning with psychedelics, which will be coming out maybe later this year. Um, one that's coming out in a week is called Integral Psychedelic Psychotherapy, which I co-edited with my dear friends, uh, Dr. Jason Butler and Dr. Genesee Herzberg. And that's more for uh, professionals. It's a trade book. And so those of you who are professionals, I think will be interested in that one, Integral Psychedelic Therapy. Let's go back to Dr. Evan Sola now. Thanks for having me today, Richard. Um, I think you asked for a concluding remark. I just wanted to say that um, this being human is, is beautiful and uh, something wondrous, and it can also be really hard. So whatever you're holding, whether you're a client, whether you're a therapist or just you know human being, I just like to leave the message of whatever you're holding, connect, use it to connect, consult, collaborate, communicate. Don't hold it alone, whatever it is you're holding. Don't hold it alone. Thank you. Don't hold it alone. That's the slogan. Share it with others in the community. Are you going to be in Denver in June? I will be. How about you? I'll be there also. That'll be great. If we haven't if we have an opportunity, let's uh, press the flesh. I'd really appreciate that, Richard. Let's make it happen. Okay. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. Oh.